Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Sherry, no matter how hard I tried to hide my alcoholism from others outside of our immediate family, the truth eventually, it started seeping out. Hmm, that's true. Yeah. You were there, so you probably remember. Yeah. And you were sober, so you probably remember. Yeah. And one more thing, your memory is way better than mine, so you probably remember. Yeah. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised at some of the pieces that I saw. Like, I don't know if it's just people are so engrossed in their own lives or if it was so sporadic. You surprised other people. But I was like, like, there was like a 10,000 piece puzzle laid at their feet and people just didn't kind of put it together. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Well, that's our topic for today. We're going to get into when the truth starts seeping out. And we've got two wonderful guests here to discuss it with us today. We're going to bring Mindy and Deb into the conversation in a minute, but holding true to our uh, our plan, our current plan, we're going to answer a listener question before we dive into that. So if you would like to have us address your listener question, we'd love to have you send the question to us by email, matt at soberandunashamed.com. The listener question for today, Sherry. Many people relapse after years of sobriety. Do either of you still have fear of relapse living in the shadows? What do you think about that? So this is our, we're recording this on St. Patrick's Day, which is one of my favorite holidays. Um, This is going to be my seventh consecutive sober St. Patrick's Day, just to give people kind of a timeline of where we are in our recovery journey. At this point, are you worried about relapse? I'm not worried about your relapse. I think because you made that um, proclamation a year into your sobriety of letting everyone that you had a contact with, an email contact with, letting them know that you had been struggling with this for years and that you were an alcoholic and you hadn't drank a year, that kind of solidified for me a little bit about your um, stand in this. I mean, you had tried for 10 years and there were lots of things that you learned every time you went back to drinking. So I feel like just with the knowledge that you gained and then that big and um, coming out story, as you've called it several times. And then I think with the work that we do and the fact that we are still learning and educating ourselves and we're kind of keeping on top of the recovery community and trying to learn as much as we can. and, And we realize you know, um, that it's just a way of life. You know, it's a choice to drink, you know, to start drinking and bring alcohol into your young adulthood. Um, so there are choices of never, ever touching the stuff. And that's kind of where I think you and I are like, yeah, I feel like there's a relapse coming. Yeah. You know, you're right. We, you make the commitment. We also, like you said, we came out, everyone we know knows that I'm sober and most of those people know why. And, um, that is a huge factor. Um, there was also a time and I can't pinpoint it, but somewhere maybe in the middle, maybe at three years of sobriety, something like that. I crossed over and got to this point where, you know, and I've said this, if, even if God himself came down and said, Matt, You can drink alcohol and there will be no repercussions. I still wouldn't drink alcohol at this point. And we've just learned too much. We've learned about what alcohol does with regard to brain chemistry, what it does to our biology, how it disrupts the nervous system, not only of the drinker, but of the people around the drinker. And it's just in my head. It is just a toxin. Now, can I still remember that euphoric feeling I would get about, you know, two and a half IPAs into a drinking session? Sure. But there are other things in my life that are euphoric now. And I, you know, early on in sobriety, it was such a dark, dismal place to try to get sober when my neurotransmitters were so screwed up that I I thought that euphoria was gone forever. And now I find it in other places. And I also have learned to really appreciate just kind of an even keel, right? Kind of a peaceful 
life. And, and there's a lot of good to that because whenever we go to that euphoric place, there's an inevitable downside of disappointment, whether you're in addiction or not. That's just how, that's just how the brain works. It's like a pendulum swinging. So I, I can comfortably say, I don't, I'm very, very confident that I will never relapse. The only thing that scares me is that's a very arrogant thing to say. And there are a lot of people in the recovery community who would tell me to my face that I'm arrogant. And because of my arrogance, I'm going to relapse. Mm -hmm. So uh, I don't really believe that horse shit, but there's a little corner of my brain that says, maybe you're overconfident and maybe I am, but I don't think so. I think if you were to stop working in what we do with the recovery um, programs we run, and I think if you were to stop keeping yourself educated and, um, you know, and because we really do have a lot of our friends that are in the recovery community as well that we work with. So if you kind of got well, they're away great from people, your, they're yeah, honest they're, and vulnerable. Exactly. Like I want to be I think friends if with those people kind of went back to that mundane lifestyle and, you know, went to bars to watch games with friends that drank. I think if you shifted, there might be a little bit more reason for me to be worried but I just don't see that in you. Well, you're lucky because I'm very, very, very cheap at yes. this point in my life. So going to bars means spending money. Yeah. I would never do that. Yeah. I mean, I do well, occasionally, but I would never do that on a regular basis. I'm going to throw out this little story from what happened earlier this week. And I know that I feel like I have confidence that there will not be a relapse. And I know that that probably sounds arrogant as well, but I wonder what our kids think. And if our kids ever worry, because our seventh grader came into the house on a Tuesday or Wednesday, and I had um, I had uh, bought some single cans of beer, and I was going to buy non-alcoholic beer to make beer and cheese bread because we used, we used to, to run, run a bakery, bakery. beer oh, and cheese bread. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, so I. Um, you, you were laughing that I bought like these discounted ones too, that were in like damaged, you know, little dented cans. Was, did beer. you have to elbow the homeless people out of the way to buy? Not <laughs> making fun of homelessness. Don't but, um, understand. Uh, so I bought these cans to make this beer and cheese bread. And I wanted to make a couple for friends, uh, a couple loaves of bread for friends. But our 13 year old who's a seventh grader walked in and he looked over at the counter and there were these three individual cans of beer on the counter and he looked at me and goes, what is the beer for? And I could see like panic in his eyes. And I was like, Oh gosh, you know, I'm just making it to use in this beer and cheese bread and alcohol cooks off and everything. And then I was like a few minutes later, after he had gone downstairs, put his book bag away and kind of settled in from getting home from school, I went down and I said, I should have told you that they were there. Dad and I talked about it. And he said, why didn't you just get alcoholic, non-alcoholic beer? And I said, I am not worried about your dad drinking at all. He and I talked about it. I should have warned you all that stuff. And I asked him to like, kind of tell me what he was feeling. And it was like panic and worry and anxiety the way he was describing. And he was the youngest and least impacted Yeah. when we had our discussion with the kids and we let the first discussion and we let them, we let them say what they wanted to say. He was the one that was like, what is going on? Why are we having this family meeting? Cause he was so young at the time. Yeah. So that's yeah. very interesting. I think he was impacted and he doesn't understand some of his internal feelings about growing up in a, you know, an anxious setting, an anxious home, sort of an unnerving. Um, but he didn't see like a lot of the outward effects yeah. and he didn't quite understand your drinking. I think he totally internalized it though and understands anxiety and tension and can, and maybe that's why he has like kind of, you know, has a hard time reading a room now. One of the things I love about Andrew is he uh, doesn't understand the stigma of the stigmatized words. So he will like openly like when he's meeting a friend and if, if his friend, if he sees beer or whatever, he'll be like, oh, my dad's an alcoholic. He doesn't drink like he just like says that, you know, and at first that was. I don't know, a tinge of embarrassing for me, but now I'm like, that's great. Go get him, Tiger. Yeah. Yeah. He's like our little mouthpiece for the he generation. Yeah. He's like, yeah. Why do you have to have beer? Why do you have to do that? Why so, do you have to drink alcohol? So one thing that's interesting about your story about the beer and cheese bread, I never saw the cans. I didn't see them when they were in storage before you used them. I didn't see them on the counter and I didn't see them in the recycling. 
were you intentionally hiding them from me so that I wouldn't feel a temptation or am I just blind? Do you see this face? Yeah. No, you're just blind. Okay. They were in the cabinet. They were in the recycling bins. Okay. It's just like, oh, where's the ketchup? Oh, well, if you just moved something to the side, you could see it. Okay. That's fair. Yeah. yeah. No, they were they were there. And there okay. were some, there were like a couple IPAs. And uh so I was like, ooh. Well, that that is that's a telling story. I think the one thing we should end on on this listener question about relapse is. And a, an alcoholic relapse, a drinking alcohol relapse, you and I both feel confident is not going to happen, but there are emotional relapses that happen. Oh yeah. That's probably not gonna, I think because it just life can wear you down if you stop well, working, but again, if you stop working on it, then. But I, I know I've heard from people who are newer in this recovery game from, you know, as the, the loved one or at, in their relationship that they're shocked. And we were too. They're shocked by the emotional relapses. They did not expect to be able to go to that pit of despair without alcohol being present. And for I think for you and I, I think the way I would describe that is it still happens. It's really rare now. It's We're down to like once a year-ish. And I shouldn't say that because something bad's going to happen. But it it's it's a real thing to, to be able to emotionally go to that awful, awful place, even when alcohol isn't present. Um, because things are triggering because there are, uh, undealt with resentments, um, because you've just had these experiences, whether you've dealt with them or not, they can occasionally pile up and create, uh, relationship communication issues and just bad feelings that take you down to a bad place. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think I feel like a sign of success in recovery in relationship recovery is that the distance between the emotional relapses is consistently growing, growing longer, longer distance between. Yeah. Um, if they were getting closer together, then I'd really be worried, but I don't know that it ever goes away completely. Maybe who knows? We'll see. We'll have to report back. So I, I am so happy for our guests to be here with us and for them to be patiently listening to us addressing this listener question. It was a great question. Again, if you'd like to send us a question, send it to Matt at sober and unashamed.com and we'll try to work it into an episode so sherry the truth is seeping out um you said in in our very beginning the very introductory piece of the episode that you were shocked that people couldn't see you know put together all the millions of puzzle pieces are you referring to the fact that like you know we actually didn't go out very much but we'd go to a neighborhood party and i would get way too drunk and you know maybe not get obnoxious but like i'm thinking of the one across the street when i passed out on the neighbor's front porch on the porch swing i mean people can actually go to neighborhood parties and not pass you're out you're allowed to laugh yes. but i passed out a lot you did yeah you passed out at a bare naked but, ladies concert but because it during was, the concert but because it was different people uh you know with what? lots of okay well, go ahead that's what i was saying it was like they, we didn't have like a vast majority of friends. Like, so I'm talking a vast variety of friends. Like I I'm thinking about some of our friends who we did things regularly with that. We have often said, we don't go out much because we were all kind of in the same boat, young kids, whatever, you know? So they must've just thought, geez, well, Matt really has to cut loose on those few times. Sherry lets him out, but we, you even did some things with like some guys, you know, but, and then we had this regular group, with our church, that was a dinner group, but every time it was the men getting schnockered and half of the women getting schnockered. Well, I think that's part of it. It wasn't just me. There weren't a lot of situations where I was way drunker than everybody else. We just, I made sure that we associated with heavy drinkers Yeah. so that it wouldn't be obvious. So, I mean, looking, being an outsider and looking in, I'm thinking, why are people not connecting the dots? And then when you kind of came out, I mean, there's one friend that I feel like kind of picked it up. That was our Did friend. Did we go to the Indianapolis? Yeah, yeah, I mean, because you had not drank a few times over the years. And and he was like, yeah, you're an alcoholic. And he worked in a bar for many, many years. Yeah, well, he said so, he said what surprised him when I came out wasn't that I was declaring myself an alcoholic. He's, he was surprised that there was anyone who didn't already know that I was an alcoholic. I'm kind of in the same boat with him. Like, well, yeah. I mean, goodness sakes. Like, but... In all honesty, 
you and I both worked really hard to keep the truth from seeping out. We kept up appearances. We, our house, we've talked about this. Our house was in much better, you know, sh- condition from a, everything's picked up and clean perspective when I was yeah. drinking than it is now, because if somebody, if somebody stopped by, we wanted to give this impression of, you know, everything, nothing to see here. Right. Yeah. This is amazing. People the, would just drop in. Same thing with the yard. Um, but then, yeah, we were always like, if it had been a heavy night on Saturday night, you know, we were, we were at church. Like, yeah. We didn't miss like yeah. on Sunday morning. Cause we just didn't want anybody to think anything bad. Yeah. Cared a lot more about what people think thought of us then than we do now. Yeah. I just, which is a relief thinking, in and of itself. Why are people not like adding it up the way I do? But I mean, also I add up everybody's infractions it's not it's not a good thing i do i have like a naughty list you hold grudges demerits i have demerit yeah. like a demerit book or something so it's i just true. think gosh it's people true. must have been like clueless or they must have not thought it was terrible behavior and probably because we would get home and you would get worse that i just kind of lumped that all together at one night yeah like you probably were not acting terribly inappropriate but there were enough times with some of our good friends that i thought they didn't think you had a problem yeah well sherry keeps demerits and adds up transgressions not not a good and notices things about other people um mindy i want to bring you in i'm curious because i know that you have shared with us that one of the things that you noticed and and kept track of kind of similarly to the way sherry was just describing keeping track of naughty behavior um you have you had noticed that that your husband i i you know when you're out and about when you're in in out with other people he always treated everyone else really really well like that was part of his facade and treated them better than he treated you could you talk about that a little bit and welcome welcome mindy hey thanks for having me you guys cracked me up on the ketchup moving thing earlier i almost put my coffee out of my nose but um you know for us seeping out was difficult because he's the, the life of the party you know everyone loves him he's and he's a great guy and um and no one knew what happened when we got home no one knew what happened when the doors closed and when everyone left the party and he was too wasted to get out of the pool to walk in to go to bed kind of thing um and that's what was difficult because you know as a for me, I internalize it as what was I doing? You know, why am I not lovable? Why, why does my husband not love me? And why can't he say nice things to me? And in a part of my journey of recovery is realizing that that wasn't even about my husband. That was about my childhood stuff that I've had to work through to get to where I am today. But I could never understand why he was so nice to everybody. And to this day, I see it. I mean, you know, I hear him on the phone with his, you know, his uh, clients and I, I walk in there often and I say, man, you are just so nice to them. Why can't you be that nice to me? So I think it's just, you know, the roles that you play, depending on the people you're around. Right. And um, that's just something I personally had to walk through to understand why I let it affect me so deeply. I mean, uh, boy, can I relate to what you're saying there? When we would be out, you know, I, I, I don't know if I would go so far as to call myself the life of the party, but I sure was trying to be, I was trying to be funny and, and outgoing. And, but then when we would even get in the car, we wouldn't even have to be home. I would, it would, it would just get dark for me so fast and I would be moody and grumpy. And, um, I I think that is so common, but I think, you know, you, you talked about how this isn't even about your marriage relationship. It's about your childhood stuff, but I think there's a huge problem in the recovery community when it, when we talk about romantic relationships in that you know, this is the person that you've bonded your life together, that you've declared your love for. And then that's the person that you treat badly. And that's pretty universal uh, in active addiction. But even beyond that, um, when we're in recovery, like we don't, as the alcoholics, recognize that we have done so much damage to the relationship and we have hurt this person that's supposed to be at the top of the list of people that were there to love and protect. We've hurt them so much that we have to win them back. And so in early sobriety, we mope around and we sulk around and we're moody and we're, you know, our behavior isn't much better than it was in active addiction. 
And we, I just don't think, I know I didn't, and I know this is universal. We don't recognize that this person is no longer attracted to us. They might still love us because we've had children together. Or we've been married for 20 years or whatever it is, but they don't like us and they're not attracted to us. And we've got to shift gears and get to a place where we're trying to win that person back. And where Mindy, you have to be the person that he treats better than anyone else, because you're half gone, whether you're physically gone or yeah. not, you're emotionally, you're out the door. And so, I mean, I just think that's a huge, huge piece of it. Um, Deb, I, I want to ask you a question about, um, you, you shared with us some time ago about realizing that you deserve to own part of your story, that it's not enough to just say, oh, I am in a long-term partnered relationship with an alcoholic and I have to protect his secrets because, um, that's what society tells me to do. We're going to keep stuff that happens in the house, in the house. And, um, you said, no, I'm going to own part of my story and I'm going to talk about it. Can you talk about what that's like? It was it relieving for you. Was it scary for you? Talk about that a little bit, Deb and welcome Deb to the intoxicated podcast. Awesome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. You know, I think that that moment when I started to realize I was needing to look at my story for what it is, regardless of the players, regardless of my partner was for me, it was a moment I started to say, okay, you know what, this is for better or for worse part of my life, whether it's a temporary part or I'm with this person for the rest of my life, whatever that is, the, the reality is that this is a piece of it now. This is a piece of it that I can't change. I can't go back and erase. And I was feeling like I was losing myself. I was feeling like my, my relationships were becoming disingenuous because I wasn't sharing with the people close to me you know, and, and I wasn't, people would say, how's it going? And, oh, it's fine. And I just felt like either I need to start being honest or I need to just stop interacting with people around me. And I don't mean that I have a big banner on top of the house, waving my partner's name and, and making announcements with, you know, loudspeakers. But I, I do mean that I have a right to say, this is what I'm experiencing. This is what I need to share with other people so that I can understand it and not let it basically keep me a hostage, you know, because it, it, I feel like there are moments in this journey where I have felt very much like it's keeping me as a hostage. And it was like, you know, forget that. That is not how this can go. So, so what did um, not letting it keep you a hostage and what did sharing your story start to look like? I mean, this isn't the kind of thing where you just, you know, you take out a billboard on uh, I-70 and say, my, I'm, I'm, I'm in partnership with an alcoholic. But as a part of owning the story, is that kind of something that you work your way into and start to test the waters for what conversations feel comfortable? You know, I think a little bit of that, yeah. Depending on the person and the situation, you know, there are still places I don't share this. If it's like a really professional meeting, I'm not going to go in and say, I'm really exhausted because I was up till three and you know, like I'm just not, but I, I do think, you know, it was starting to share. I shared right away with my family and close friends. I even told my partner when, when it all came out, when it leaked out for me in confirmation, what was going on, I said, I won't live in secrecy with the people that are closest to me. So either you can tell them your own way or I will. And that was really important. I think early on, but, but beyond that, I think it was starting to, to, share a little bit and then getting the, the feedback loop that this is not an isolated thing. That is just my story. Oh my gosh, it's, it's everywhere. And, you know, hearing the stories of folks in the echoes group has just been so um, well, heartbreaking, but also liberating because I think I was, I really had myself convinced that this was some little weird isolated bubble, which I look back now and realize how silly that was to think that alcoholism is a, epidemic beyond anything really but yet i had convinced myself that this was isolated it was it was something that was not anything anybody else would relate to and that it was so wrong i've learned yeah yeah you know you you talking about telling your family and and letting them in on the secret made me think of a story mindy that you've shared with us about when your dad really believed you what was going on for the first time. Can you tell that story? Oh man. Yeah. Um, this is not an easy story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
you know, I, uh, it was just dark. I really appreciate what you said, Deb, because, you know, it was uh, for me, I ended up literally sleeping in a closet in my house because I didn't know where else to go to be safe from what was going on in my home. And it just got so dark that I just didn't want to live anymore. I mean, I just didn't want to live anymore. And I was fantasizing about the easiest way to, to end my life. And, um, sorry, it still gets me pretty, Oh, um, anywho. And I was, uh, I left my, our marital home. I had recently moved out, um, to get a break from what was going on. And I was driving, um, down the highway and I came up to this big bridge and I thought, man, this is it. This would be the easiest way to do it. I'm just going to drive off the bridge. It would be the easiest way. And I went up that bridge and my mind completely like blacked out and I was driving off the bridge. And all of a sudden, I mean, I mean, I can't, the only way I can describe it was just like this beaming light came down in front of me and it snapped me out of it. And I didn't realize when I was hitting that bridge that my dad's house was literally below that bridge, like a couple miles from that bridge. And, um, and it just snapped me out of it. And I just drove to his house. It was one of those, I don't remember driving to his house. I just remember driving to his house and and opening a door and falling to the floor and just, I couldn't even explain to him what was going on. I mean, he'd kind of been around, it's starting to come surface out for a couple of months. My husband had gone to, um, to, to rehab and we all thought it was gonna be better when he came back from rehab. And that was the biggest fallacy. I think rehab shares um, saying that everything's gonna be better, but um, about 20 minutes after I was able to calm down and be able to speak to my dad. And I just said, I just almost killed myself. And just saying those words was very healing because it's something I, I fantasized about in the closet for months of this process. And he just, you know, picked me up um, and just said, that's it. You know, this is it. We're going to make changes. It's time to, you know, file for divorce. Is that what we need to do? But, you know, this, we're going to take care of this. This is not okay. And it was just really the first time that anyone in my family, they all love him, right? We all love him. He's a great person. We just think he, we adore him, but it was the first time in our, in my life, in my family, immediate family, where someone just loved me more and just put their arms around me and just said, you know, you matter, which was important because at that point I had no, I didn't feel like I mattered to anybody. And so he just put his arms around me and just believed in me and encouraged me. And um, that next day we went out and found a house and we just, you know, made some decisions to get to a safer, more, um, an immensely healthy place. And so I'm very thankful for that moment because, um, and I wish I could say, I haven't thought about it since then, but as you mentioned earlier in the call about the emotional relapses that happen, you know, you kind of start diving down that, um, that road and I have to be very careful because, um, I didn't even realize that I had this depression issues until all this happened. Right. Cause I had no, I had no idea. I don't even put a word around that. So, um, yeah. So my dad just, believe me. And I think he's probably the only one that still believes me at this point. <laughs> you know, that's one that ours is still seeping out. We're still, it's still pretty secretive because it's not my story to tell on my husband's side, but to Deb's point, this is my recovery story. And I'm not going to be ashamed to tell it because someone else, I'm sure I'm not the only one that has thought those things. And it breaks my heart to even think that anyone else would be thinking that. I think that is such an incredibly impactful and important story because we work really hard as the alcoholics, not in a mean way, but we work really, really hard to keep this all secret right down to the point where for Sherry and I, I remember, I don't remember if it was the first time you called my parents. It had to be the first time you called my parents in the middle of the night when I was drunk and she was just begging for help. And I remember the next day explaining to my parents that Sherry is mentally unstable and that you have mom and dad, you have no idea what I have to live with to deal with this insane person. And the fact that she's calling you in the middle of the night should prove to you how crazy she is. And I mean, just doing everything I could, not because I hated Sherry, but because I was so scared of having to give up alcohol or having to own the truth about my alcoholism that I would even bury the person that I most loved um, to save my addiction, I guess, to prioritize my addiction. And so I don't know. I mean, the reason I thank you so much for telling that story. I know how emotional it is. Um, it's emotional for me to hear it, but it's such a kind of vivid manifestation of what 
I think happens literally millions of times a year in, in maybe, maybe more subtle ways, maybe just as dramatic ways, but it's whether it's driving on a bridge and considering taking your own life or something similar. Um, it's so common. It's something that so many people go through. Um, I know I, I loved while you were telling that story, Deb's heard it before and she knew it was going to be tough and she was putting in the chat support for you and Sherry's crying right here next to me right now. Um, because it, this is what it's like to live with an alcoholic to, 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 especially a high functioning alcoholic who's doing, doing our best to hide it from others to just not only feel like your life is in turmoil, but that no one believes you that your life is in turmoil. Yeah. And as you were describing talking to your parents, it wasn't even like later on that night or it wasn't that next morning. They actually called back a few hours later in the middle of the night. And it was so disgusting to listen to you talk to them because you had damaged things. You had broken things. You had thrown a fit. You had smashed things. My jewelry was scattered all over our bedroom because you had just wiped things off of a counter. And I'm like sitting there thinking, you're telling all this bullshit. If this was a video call, I could show them the mess that you've made in our bedroom with you throwing this tantrum and scaring our kid who was sleeping in a room close to us. So it's so frustrating when people don't believe you. It's so sad and it makes you feel like you are the crazy one. And then when we are in recovery, when we're in sobriety, we want to say, okay, let's focus on the present and the future. I'm not drinking anymore. Let's move forward. And I, you know, in early sobriety, I couldn't go back to those places and have those discussions because it would re-traumatize me. It would trigger me. It would probably lead to me drinking. And how do you reconcile that? You, you as the spouses, as the partners of alcoholics, you have lived through traumatic things that no human should have to live through. You know, I used to kind of uh, be more subtle with this because I didn't want to over-dramatize it, but I've just heard too many stories like the one you just shared, Mindy. It's life for fucking death. I mean, it's so, it's so real and it's so, it is dramatic. And the fact that in early sobriety, we say, Hey, 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 hey I quit drinking. Let's move forward. We can't go back there. But we have to get, for the relationship to survive, we have to get to the place where we can go back there and we can have these discussions and acknowledge the trauma that you've been through. And also, by the way, in my humble opinion, there should be some serious ther therapy work done to deal with the trauma um, that you've been through because it's, it's not minor. It's a big, big, big deal. Well, and it's because it's an emotional abuse that we've lived in for years probably yeah yeah deb you you have had a, a what i consider equally um kind of eye-opening experience um you know kind of in your face you can't look away anymore experience in that you your partner was in a um pretty serious pretty extended relapse and you needed help. You needed help from family and friends to be there to support you, to make sure everything was okay. And so when you invited those family and close friends into your home to support you, they got to see things that people outside of the relationship don't normally see. And so you got to watch them see things. Can you talk about how that changed your perspective on all of this? Oh, absolutely. And I think it plays into what you just said about how you used to want to not be dramatic. You used to want to sort of make things a little softer and then it just, you've heard too much. And I think that that's kind of what this did for me was that for years I, I was able to sort of downplay my traumatic experience of it because I was intellectually understanding and learning about the, the disease because as Mindy said about her partner, my partner is a fabulous human being as a sober person kind, gentle, just a lovely human. And so I was really struggling to reconcile all of this. And I had, I had sort of covered my experience of it 
by hiding it in this, well, it's a disease and this is what alcohol does. And I'm strong enough to handle this. And I can, I can say that I can be spoken to that way or treated this way. And I can walk away because that's, I can deal with it, you know? And I think what I realized I had done was gaslight myself a bit. And then this past January, when the relapse was pretty severe, uh, the verbal aggression, um, the attacks towards me, I basically became Satan's spawn in my own home. I mean, I might as well have, if I had smiled, it would have been the wrong thing to do. And I was not safe. And so I had family, friends, people coming to stay. And my partner was in such a bad space that the previous be polite when somebody else comes in the house had kind of gone out the window. I, I think because they were here for almost three weeks, he probably couldn't keep that facade up is my guess. <laughs> And watching conversations and rude exchanges and, and horrible comments that were being made to like my parents who they all had a great relationship. I mean, I was watching, I was like, wow, if he could say that to my dad or to my mom, wow, that probably is still slightly you know, sanitized compared to the things I've been hearing for years. And, and then standing back there and watching it, it was like a moment of saying, okay, Deb, you've got you've to wake up for yourself. This is not okay. This is too much to deal with. This is complete abuse. And you've been fielding this and, and saying that somehow you could manage it because it's a disease. And I, to be honest, I still sit in that place of confusion around that because I do know it's a disease and it's a disease he doesn't want. And I'm also profoundly hurt. And I'm still, it's two months after these events. And I still, I was crying this morning. Like I am still so wrecked. That it's like I can no longer look at it and say, okay, it's a disease. Yeah, it is. And it's also his responsibility. It can't be mine to manage the disease part of it like that. Like I'm, I'm still, I'm probably not articulating that well because I'm still trying to figure it out. But oh my gosh, seeing other people deal with, with my person and his dynamic made a reality check for me that I don't know how else I could have done it. Well, I think you're articulating it very well. When Mindy told her story about the bridge, she talked about what that was like when her father believed her for the first time. Uh, I, I don't know what your parents' impression of what you have been telling them has been prior to this, but did them seeing it firsthand, did that, did that change things for them? Did that change things with your relationship with your parents? Oh, actually, I was relating so much to what Mindy shared about her dad. At one point, my dad looked at me and my partner as we were attempting to have a conversation that, of course, was not happening because my partner was off the rails. And my dad said, I don't know what the next step is here, but status quo is no longer like he just put the foot down. And it was like I just needed just like what Mindy was saying. I just the feeling of having that moment where it wasn't me having to put the foot down. It wasn't me having to figure out how to protect myself for that that moment. And at a different time, like a week or so later, my my mom actually said, because I've been honest with them and, and they know, but you can't really, what I'm realizing is I can't describe the insanity the way that it is to live it. And my mom said, how on earth have you been dealing with this? And just seeing her being at kind of the end of her rope and, and so shocked at what my partner was bringing forward, because again, they, especially my mom and my partner, they'll cook for hours. I mean, they have this great relationship. She couldn't believe it was him. And I said, you know, welcome to the, the crazy making. I can't believe it's him either. Even after seven years of active addiction, I still sit here and I can't believe it was him who did that stuff in January. Cause it's like, and I have to tell myself, maybe it wasn't, maybe that's where the addict is different than my partner. And then though, the question is, what do I do for myself then? Because that addict is too dangerous to show up here again. That can't happen. And so I think that's where the people seeing it and understanding it is, is part of the, then maybe the addict part doesn't have the places to hide anymore. And maybe it's good for everybody's healing. The more people that know, I don't know. I, I'm really glad you're bringing up this, this concept, which Sherry and I fully endorse of separating the addict from the, the human being. And almost like it's, there's three people in this relationship. There's the, the former drinker, if we're in sobriety, and there's the, the loved one of the drinker, and then there's the addict and putting all the blame on the addict. That's, that's an effective, I think, personally, I think that's an important tool to use to, to get out of the shame cycle, the shame cycle that makes us feel bad and often leads to relapse. So I think 
I think it's really impactful and important. But the the thing that we can't lose sight of is the addict, even if we treat it like a separate person, that was in the same body. It was it was it was the same face, the same hands, the same voice of the um, person that you're now trying to potentially rebuild a life with. Um, and so, yes, you can, on a kind of conscious level, on a, on a intellectual level, you can separate those things and say, yes, this makes sense for my healing process, but on an emotional level, that's really hard. Isn't it? Deb? You know, it's hard. And, and this is the question I sit with is, is it even safe in all cases? Cause I think that's what I was doing for a lot of years was, was saying, this isn't him. And then that led me to being in a situation in January where I literally had to call in the troops so that I could live in my home because yeah, the body, the voice, the hands, like you said, those are all the same, but you know, the part that was different was the eyes. Yeah. I actually was like, is his even in his body right now? Like, is, is this even, is he even here or is he like someplace else? You know, like that sounds a little woo woo maybe, but I mean, that was the question I had that night when all hell was breaking loose was I little, it was like, I don't recognize those eyes at all. And it was, it was bone chilling, terrifying. Like I I'm getting teared up now thinking about how terrifying, you know, and, and I was scared for myself, but I was also scared for what he was going to go do. Like it was freezing cold. He had been wandering around the neighborhood. And of course I got accused of like chasing him down, but I went outside to see where he was going because it was 16 degrees. He was totally drunk. He had a t-shirt on. I thought he was going to freeze to death overnight. I walked out on the driveway, called his name. Then I, I, later on the phone with my parents when he's ripping on me, he's like, well, she was chasing me. I'm like, I was, I was not chasing you. Like there was nothing I could do, but I thought, well, if he goes out there again, what am I going to do? Because he, he will freeze to death tonight. He's drunk and he has a t-shirt on, you know, like there was, I was so worried about everything because he wasn't himself. And yet is that even a safe place for me to sit right now as a partner? Because there's a big part of me that's like, this just sucks, but that is too dangerous to risk again. And it's almost, know, that, yeah. I was just gonna say, like, it makes me think because in the beginning of our recovery and early sobriety, we used to kind of talk about it like being Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah. And then we started like thinking, okay, because Anna and Mitchell, have this from third party from yep. recovery, have this third party, this third person, the entity, the attic, but it is more like Jekyll and Hyde. When you get to this progression to like where Dubs Deb's um, partner was um, at that moment. And you're right. Like the eyes, I would always know when Matt was too far gone with the eyes and it could, it was very much like a Jekyll and Hyde sort of feeling. And you're right. That safety Mindy, you were nodding and reacting. Have, have you seen those eyes too? Oh gosh, yes. I mean, like, I love that, Deb, because no one else sees those eyes but the spouse. Like, you know, like they don't see that blackness that's there, the, the hollowness that's there. And and um, it's very scary. I mean, when the, the camel that broke the, uh, the straw that broke the camel's back for us, he came home and did something so incredibly scary in our home in front of our children and me. And when I was looking at him, it was happening. His eyes were so black. I knew it wasn't my husband. It was not him. It was not him. I felt like it was like someone took over his body and he displayed something that was the reason why we ended up leaving was just something that was just crossed the line and knew it was not safe anymore. Debbie, it was like, it was a moment very clear. It's no longer safe for us. It's time to go. And it was a very, it's something that we battle with a lot because he takes it as me leaving him. And I try to explain to him that it was the most difficult decision I've ever made in my entire life. And I still cry over that decision because I knew as soon as I did it, what he was going to say about me and what, how he was going to internalize me leaving him and, you know, banding in him. And, and that's the least of what I want to do. You know, I, I want, I never want to abandon my husband because I love him very much. I just don't love this guy. We have a name for it. You know, he's kind of like one of those like Mike Michaels, that's not his name. So we call it like Mike versus Michael. And it's like, I don't want Mike anymore. I only want Michael. And so that's kind of how we, we uh, put the addict versus the recovery guy in our home. And so when that guy starts surfacing, I immediately call him by the old name and say, nope, he's not welcome here. Um, and then, you know, that's how we kind of course correct today on our, on our recovery, but it's not easy. And it's, it's an everyday decision, um, but I haven't seen those eyes in a while. And I'm very thankful for that because those were scary. 
you know, I really, really appreciate this part of the conversation. And I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to make a point that I, I struggle to make when I write about this stuff and I struggle to make it when I talk, when we talk about this stuff, I, I just, I don't know that I'm not articulating it well enough, but I can't seem to get the point across to the intended audience. And the point is that as the person in sobriety, as the recovering alcoholic, this can be a very painful thing to listen to and it can be shameful. And so that separating the addict from the person is very important again, to, to end that shame cycle. But when we aren't getting the support that we're seeking in sobriety, when we aren't getting kind of the, you know, the cheerleader, the, the, Hey, you know, root me on, I'm doing something hard here. Um, I think that stories like this, for me, this is enough of an explanation of what you've been through that it makes me say, oh, okay, wait a minute. I get it now. I get why you can't be my cheerleader. Uh, you know, uh, look at the things that have happened, whether it was me or it was the devil that had possessed me. And, and those, those were the devil's eyes you were seeing. You, you've been through enough that the fact that you're even willing to talk to me, I should consider a blessing. And I've got to treat this as starting over from not even scratch. There's a, there is a higher trust level that you have with a complete stranger than you have with someone who has gone through, you know, gone to the depths of alcoholism like I did. Um, and so I've got to start over, not even from scratch. I've got to start from way below scratch to regain your trust to regain, you know, for you to maybe someday find some kind of a, attraction to me and, and to like me and to want to be around me. And so rather than be um, shamed by stories like this or embarrassed um, or to want to sweep them under the carpet, I need, for me, it's important to embrace these stories and say, oh, this explains my starting point. This is a big, tough journey. And if I want to make this relationship work, that's what I've got to be willing. That's the journey I got to be willing to go on. And if I'm not, you know, there, there are many cases, you know, Sherry and I started this work thinking, Oh, we're going to help people save their marriage. And that has transitioned for us into, we just want people to be realistic about their marriage. And there are many, many cases where it's better to separate and move on and start over because starting over is often easier. I'm not suggesting that the decision to divorce or to legally separate is ever easy. So please don't misunderstand but it is sometimes easier than fixing the damage that's been done. And so again, I, I, I often am accused of, Oh, you're just siding with the spouses. I'm not siding with the spouses. I'm trying to give a realistic view to the alcoholics of the workload that's in front of you. Um, because being blind to that certainly isn't going to help the relationship repair. Well, and that it's a long haul. You have to find your sobriety support group. You have to work on doing as much research as you can to kind of understand this, which you kind of like for the, this is for both parties, but I'm kind of speaking to the alcoholic. You have to kind of step outside of what even your support network looks like with its AA, you need to like say, okay, well, I need to do research on brain chemistry and what it's done to my nervous system. And then that will kind of give you a little insight, what it's done to your partner and to your family that you've behaved this way around. And then when you are, in a good place of sobriety and you're working on that, then the marriage recovery and trying, cause you know, it's going to be hard. Like you said, you couldn't have heard those stories in the beginning. That's right. So there has to be this longer timeline yeah. and this impatience. I'm sure that the, the alcoholic wants to get back to this healthy relationship as fast as they can, because they feel like they need that support and to help them maintain sobriety it's just not. It, it, and the point is during that longer timeline, when I'm not able to go back to those places because it'll re-traumatize me. The, the thing I want people to understand is you can't expect your partner to be your cheerleader. Mm -hmm. they, they are in so much pain and that's been unrecognized by the outside world because we don't worry about the loved one. We only worry about the alcoholic. Mm -hmm. So the idea that they're even, you know, there. returning your phone calls is a miracle. And we should just consider that to be a blessing. <laughs> I say that all the time. 
Like, I feel like, and we still haven't gotten to the place where my husband's able to say, I can't believe you're still standing here. Like we haven't gotten there. And I just, that is the thing I'm waiting for. You know, everyone talks about, oh, he made amends. Okay. That's great. But this, I'm talking about that level of, I can't believe you still want to be my wife. Like, I cannot even believe that you want to be here with me. And that makes me so incredibly thankful. We haven't gotten there yet. And so like this part of this, this conversation is like I said earlier, is part of my recovery because I've kept it quiet and been shameful and of, of, of allowing all this to happen in my life for so long that I'm not doing that anymore. And I have a, you know, I have this sign above my front door that I had made for the new house. that says, you know, the boundary of reconciliation, you reconcile with the healthy and not the lonely. And I take that for every relationship. So this process has not only been a purification of understanding what addiction's done to me, but you know, uh, why did I chose this? I chose this road. I mean, I, I chose this road. I knew who he was in the beginning. And then it makes you look at every relationship. And so it's been very painful, but very liberating to get to the other side and remove all this toxicity out of my life. So I can start focusing on just being joyful. And I just want to be joyful. And I think that's what you missed out when you're living an addictive life with addictive family. There's just no joy in, in the day, the everyday things that we should have joy in. That's just not, it's not there. Right. Yeah. Well, I think too, it's such, it just creeps up on you. You know, like there were a lot of red flags and yes, like I was like dismissive. I wouldn't always say that I was naive about what I saw on map, but I was dismissive because I kept thinking, oh, the good is going to outweigh and he's going to realize yeah. one day because I could convince him that having a cocktail or two every night after work when you're, you know, you've got your first starter job out of college at age 25 like that's what you do 22. or 22. Sorry. Yeah. Well, it's okay. <laughs> well, I mean, I think you were probably drinking. Wasn't bush. You were probably drinking Bush <laughs> yeah. at the time. So when I said cocktail, I'm waiting until you got that better job. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. So, you know, but to say like, that's not sustainable. That's not, but I didn't realize that that's what he grew up seeing. So I kept yeah. thinking and I was being hopeful, not so much, like I said, naive. And I saw red flags, but I was like, well, their maturity will sink in, but I had, you know, I just didn't know what I didn't know. And then it just was such a progression that was slow and building up and building up. And, you know, I wish for me, I would have stopped it much sooner. I don't know how it would have played out, but I hope that these podcasts give people, you know, a reason to feel like if you feel like you have a proud, if there's a problem with drinking in your relationship, whether you're the one that is the drinker or you're living with it and it's a problem for you, no matter what is going on, then you should just jump on that. Yeah. Cause you know, it doesn't have to be the most, you know, disdainable thing to make it a problem. Yeah. So calling it out early on, maybe you won't have to go down this deep, dark, ugly road. Uh, yeah. And, and like we've said so many times, sobriety doesn't fix anything, but it is a prerequisite. And uh, Mindy, tell me, I love that saying on the sign you said, says um, you want to reconcile with someone that's healthy. Say it again for me. So it's uh, the boundary of reconciliation. You reconcile with the healthy and not the lonely. Oof. So when I got the courage to leave that situation, you know, I love him and I knew he'd be banging on my door. And, and it was one of those, it was a, someone said that quote to me. So I had a sign made to put above my front door and I wouldn't allow him in. And so I felt like, he was not just there because he was lonely, you know, he was there because he really wanted to be healthy and he wanted to, you know, create a healthy marriage with me and a healthy family. And so um, it's still up there and I won't take it down because I, I not only do that towards him, but pretty much anyone that's coming in my house. Like I want to, I'm just laser focused on let's get healthy because we've, none of us are healthy. You know, not all of us have trauma that we've never worked through or want to talk about. And um, that's been my focus. And then how I can, you know, right now is like, how can I get my children involved in the trauma therapies and how, because I don't want them being my age going, I made this choice because of all these reasons that I didn't really, really realize I was battling. Right. So yeah, boundary of reconciliation, you reconcile with the healthy, not the lonely. Well, and uh, it's been a guiding light for me. It speaks so well to this concept that sobriety doesn't fix anything. And, and as we've talked about many times, our relationship, Sherry and I's relationship is so much stronger now than it's ever been because we got independently strong and then we started working on the relationship. And so that's, I mean, I just couldn't, we, we talk to people all the time that talk about how either in still in active addiction 
or in early sobriety, they're going to marriage counseling and the marriage counseling isn't work. And they're frustrated by that. And I understand the frustration in that, but if the two humans aren't healthy yet, the reconciliation piece, um, you're just wasting money on it at that point. So I, I love that. I'm going to, we, we need to sign for our, yeah, steal that. our door, don't we, Sherry? Yeah, steal it. Maybe that's the <laughs> Yeah. Well, because, we, you know, we, a part of that is admitting it was hard for me to get to the place where I had to admit that I had a role in this. You know, I'm not, I didn't have a role pushing the beer in his hand or, you know, all that kind of stuff. But I had the role in my own decision making and how I was reacting to what was happening. And um, so that I'm thankful for that. Like, I'm, I'm very thankful for the journey, although very dark and hard. But, you know, at this side of it. I'm, I'm excited to talk about it because it, there is freedom. If you choose freedom, I mean, I had a guy tell me, you know, you can, you cannot drag people to freedom, right? I couldn't drag my husband to freedom, which is why I left, right? Like it got to the point where I'm heading towards freedom and you either going to take me down or come with me. And so that's where we are. Well, and you certainly have a role, whether or not you have really much of a role in the destructive path, you certainly have a role in the recovery piece. And you've talked, Mindy, about how you experienced physical manifestations of the nervous system dysregulation. We talk all the time about how when you're constantly on eggshells, when you're, when you hear the car pull up in the driveway, you go into fight or flight. Like we're not supposed to go into fight or flight because a car drives in the driveway, you know, at six o'clock in the evening. Um, so the, the repair work that you had to do was not just emotional. Um, you dealt, can you talk a little bit about what that nervous system dys- dysregulation that on eggshells all the time, what that did to you physically? Oh man, I'm still recovering from that. You know, I almost went bald. <laughs> I mean, like I, and this is, you know, probably a little too graphic, but I didn't have a regular bowel movement in a year. I didn't stop having periods for a year. Like I was falling apart and, um, and I was diagnosed with everything under the sun from autoimmune diseases to narcoleptic, name it, because they couldn't figure out what was wrong with me. And the minute I move out and get away from that trauma for three or four weeks, I totally started feeling better. You know, it was like an instant change. And to this day, you know, we are now living together and I have to be very careful because I get a ding on my phone when someone pulls up in the driveway and I still see myself, I stop and I hold my breath for a second. And then I have to remind myself, no, I'm safe. This is a safe place. And the good news is if it's not safe now, I'm strong enough to say, get out because my safety is the most important thing, my physical safety. And, and I never realized before now that my mental health and the stuff that was happening to me with the mental abuse that was going on was affecting my physical being so much. And, um, you know, I'm still, I'm in the very early stages of recovering my physical body from all that. And it's an everyday process to choose not to let my emotional state go back into the fight or flight. Now I can feel it. It's instant. I didn't, I didn't even, I didn't even feel it before. Now I instantly feel my body when it starts seizing up and I'm like, okay, wait a second. This isn't normal. This isn't right. I'm safe and I have to talk myself through it. So it's a, it's a real thing. Oh, absolutely. And, and Deb, I know you are really like health and, you know, putting the right things in your body experience with nature, being connected to nature. These are all things that you don't just value as lip service, but you value in practice. So is it scary for you, Deb, to think about the impact of the nervous system dysregulation on your biology when all these other efforts you're making are to, you know, take care of your biology? Oh yeah. I think that's a great question. And, and boy, Mindy, I can relate to so much of what you said. Um, I, I would say the nervous system challenges are one of the most difficult. I mean, I don't know about other people, but I know for me, like it, it can take sometimes weeks. Like I'm, my partner just hit five weeks of sobriety and my nervous system is still, so I still wake up in the middle of the night with my heart racing and I can't stop it. And all the things that I, I, I do to help, they help a little bit, but what I've started to realize is, is that it's a, if our body's are like ecological systems and you have an input of energy, like you have constant storm or a, you know, a constant volcano eruption into a a system, it's going to cause long-term, you know, it's going to be, you know, forest fire moves through a forest and that's a disruption in a system. The forest doesn't just repair itself and look like the old forest two weeks later, It, it can take years. And so when I, when I look at those metaphorically, 
although maybe not so metaphorically, because, you know, we kind of are systems, you know, we've got all kinds. Of, and I think, wow, it, this is such a slow process, at least for myself that, um, and because like, like what Mindy was saying, the physical ramifications are, are long and deep. Like I, I actually had, again, to go with the TMI of the, I had a hysterectomy a year ago, almost exactly a year ago um, for very large fibroids that were they're in my family, but my doctor said, your cortisol levels are so out mm. of whack that I can't possibly sit here and tell you that it wasn't, it's not stress. And she, she was looking at my, my lab panels and she said, are you under any kind of chronic stress? I'm very concerned about how your hormone levels look for stress. And I was like, oh my God, I don't even know what not under chronic stress is anymore. You know? So can I say for sure, that's why that surgery had to happen. No, I'm sure I had genetic predisposition to it, but did it exacerbate it? Probably. And according to my doctor, her bigger worry was my stress than anything else. You know, oh yeah, we're going to take out an organ, but let's talk about your stress because what else is this going to do in your body? You know, so I, I think of it like a fire moving through a forest. Like if we think of our bodies as these delicate balanced systems of inputs and outputs and, and, and then we have these catastrophic things and then this would be like a fire burning for a long time though. That's the thing that's, I think, really hard for living in a, a active addiction place because it's not like a fire is there for two hours, you know, it's yeah. a fire for years. Yeah. Well, that, that leads me to the, the question for you, Deb, that I kind of want to end on um, that leads in really well in some recent writing that we've done together you had a line that I wrote down and I just can't stop thinking about it. You said, especially as it relates to this topic of the truth seeping out, um, not just to others, but as we start to internalize what the truth really is, you said the secret is in my heart now. Um, that's such an impactful statement. Can you talk about what that means to you that the secret is in your heart now? Yeah. You know, I, I think it means a few things and I'm not even sure exactly what it meant when I wrote that a few weeks ago, but um, I think one of them, one of the secrets is on a, a cultural level, the secret that alcoholism is something to hide for both the alcoholic and all the other people that are affected. You know, I now see the truth of that. It, the worst thing it can, that we can all do is hide it. I think it's a detrimental to the alcoholics. I know personally it's very detrimental to the partners I've heard stories. I don't have children, but I hear stories of how it's, it is to children. Um, that secret has, if it's like, if it's in my heart, it, you know, my heart's going to have to speak. My heart's going to make me talk. It's going to make me act. The other part of that is very personal, which is, is that secret. I think that I had somehow convinced myself that, well, this is a disease like any other disease and I can deal with this. You know, my grandmother, had Alzheimer's and there were times that she was kind of mean and nasty and we all didn't turn against her, you know, so how could this be any different? And I think that I had to say to my heart, I hear you, this is different. We will not live like this for the rest of our lives. I, to this day, I don't know what that's going to look like tomorrow just yet. I am trying to listen to my heart, trying to figure out next steps. But what I do know is that my heart is, I can't pretend anymore that my heart isn't absolutely feeling all of this and that horrible words and horrible actions, even if they're coming from an addict who isn't my partner, if they're coming at me, my heart needs me to stand up and say, all right, I'm going to protect us from that. Even if the decisions to do so are painful and difficult, which I'm very worried about that. You know, I don't know what the weeks and months coming ahead are going to be, but I know that my heart I owe it to my heart. You know, my heart is staying intact through all of this. My heart deserves to not be lied to anymore, to not be said what you're feeling right now. It doesn't matter because of what I read yesterday about alcoholism and how it changes the brain. It's like, it's really good that I know that, but you know what heart you're right to, you didn't deserve to be spoken to that way. Yeah, boy, we talk a lot about the importance of trusting your instincts and fighting through those insecurities. And you just talk, you know, you, that answer was great. And I have to, I have to own something. 
I was feeling a little guilty when I asked you that question and I read you your own quote because I didn't prep you for that at all. I didn't tell you I was going to ask that. And I'm like, God, something she wrote several weeks ago and I'm going to ask her to explain it. What an ass am I? So, uh, oh, you, it's cool. You knocked, you knocked it out of the park. That answer was fantastic. Was beautiful. And so beautiful truthful. Answer, yeah. yeah. Thank you both so much for being here. Mindy, Deb, this, this has been, you know, I say this all the time, but this has been a really important conversation and I hope a lot of people listen to it. And if you are a listener, a regular listener, and this one really spoke to you, I hope you'll consider sharing it with your tribe because um, I think we covered some, some ground that, that people are, who are earlier on in the recovery process, just really, really, really need to hear. So Mindy, Deb, thank you very much for being with us on the Intoxicated Podcast. Thank you so much. So, so much. Thank you for having me. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.